Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. How heartbreaking was that last night? A match that New Zealand dominated in all the statistics, except for the only one that matters, the number of goals scored. There was that disallowed goal for the narrowest of offside decisions. In fact, just a few centimetres of arm and a tiny slither of Hannah Wilkinson's head were shown on the freeze frame to be over the offside line, and the vast majority of her body was behind the line. But... Unfortunately, those are the rules. Then there was a shot off the post, a couple of other near misses. It was a game of maybes and what-ifs and just really sheer bad luck for the home team. But that's the great glory of sport, isn't it? And that's why we love it so much and that's why the match last night had a capacity crowd in Wellington and a huge TV audience in this country. To be honest, I don't know if New Zealand will make it out of the group and into the second round of the tournament. I suspect they won't, uh, but that doesn't matter. What this team and this event has done for sport in this country is just fantastic. Even the size of the crowds has surprised me. We are not a football nation. We are not a nation that usually gets excited about women's sport in large numbers either, except on very rare occasions, such as the final of the Women's Rugby World Cup last year. Yet here we are, crowds of more than 30 and 40,000 spectators have not been uncommon and Dunedin Stadium will be at capacity again on Sunday night for the New Zealand match against Switzerland. The big question is will the aftermath of this tournament still be exciting interest in women's football in New Zealand this time next year? Sadly if it follows the same path as last year's rugby uh, the answer will be no. Much is made of how the FIFA Women's World Cup has opened up frontiers for women in sport. Read any feature story on the champion US team and their captain, uh, Megan Rapinoe, and you very quickly find that she and the team have never been afraid to be activists for a cause, whether it be equal pay, indigenous rights, and especially LGBT rights, the American team has never been afraid to speak their minds. For this tournament, FIFA has changed its rules so that all team captains can wear one of eight armbands supporting various causes like Indigenous rights, gender equality, and an amended version of the One Love armband supporting the rainbow community. Now, I would rather players concentrate on the sport and not on activism, but the activism, frankly, has been pretty low-key so far. Therefore, I was rather staggered, in fact, completely staggered, at the pushback to a question at a press conference in Australia on Sunday when a BBC reporter asked the Moroccan captain if there were any gay players in her team. Now, being a Muslim country, gay relationships are banned in Morocco and are punishable by up to three years in jail. But this BBC reporter has been described as rogue and his question as shocking from other journalists who were at this press conference. Uh, the FIFA media man shut the question down before the Moroccan captain could answer. Reports said the Moroccan players, because of this question, could be endangered. Now, 
These players at this tournament can't have it both ways. Either we keep politics and activism for various causes out of the tournament, or we have it as part of the event, in which case you have to expect questions about it. The BBC reporter was just doing a job. It's what reporters do. They ask questions. The Moroccan captain could have very easily said no, and that would be the end of the story. The pushback from other reporters present showed that they are more PR people than proper journalists and they don't understand the Western concepts of a free press and freedom of expression. FIFA's reaction was entirely predictable, but gee, I applaud the BBC reporter for trying. Women's football, like a number of women's sports, has many gay players. For most people, it's not an issue, it's life. But when players at a World Cup make a point of pushing rainbow rights through the captain's armbands, then it is a very legitimate question to ask the Moroccan captain. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, I'd never heard of Jason Aki until two days ago, but I actually admire his honesty and his principles and his willingness not to get on the gravy train of government appointments. Funnily enough, earlier today, I wrote that I doubted he'd be able to keep his mouth shut and his fingers quiet on political issues while a member of the Radio New Zealand board. He knew that too, so he quits before he got into more trouble. He sounds like exactly the kind of guy that Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson would appoint to the Board of Radio New Zealand. He's a one-time journalist. He's done a variety of jobs in consulting to and for Maori interests and is now one of the bigwigs at Tainui as the General Manager of Communications. 20 years ago as well, he worked in the Prime Minister Helen Clark's office. He only started on the board of RNZ at the beginning of this month, but now he's quit. This is after he burst into print on Facebook after the Kiri Allen news came out on Monday morning, asking why she was allowed to go back to work after her recent personal issues. Then he said that the reaction to her arrest was like sharks circling when there was blood in the water. Chris Hipkins said those comments were inappropriate from an RNZ director. Undeterred, Mr. Aki doubled down yesterday. He wrote that Maori were disproportionately affected by mental health issues. And then he continued, yes, we live longer now, but we continue to lag behind Pakihas. That's the real crime here. And much of it is born out of this ideological premise that we as Maori must conform. Uh, That is somewhat inflammatory writing from a newly appointed director who had been told by no less than the Prime Minister that his first comments were inappropriate. And then told by the chairman of RNZ, Jim Mather, that he must avoid political activities in his new role. And then he was given a dressing down by the man who appointed him, Willie Jackson. Uh, The broadcasting minister said Aki will have to pull back or would have to pull back if he wanted to stay a board member there. Well, Jason Aki has decided he can't pull back, so he's resigned. I can only have admiration for him. He wants to advocate for Maori interests outside the RNZ boardroom. And according to the rules, the roles are not compatible. So good for him. He's quit. But it makes you wonder... Willie Jackson, just how much due diligence did you do on this guy? Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message 
to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, the ACT leader is accused of politicising the downfall of Kiri Allen. Well, guess what? She is or was a politician. When you're a politician, you cope and you cop politics. Kerry Allen has made a whole raft of political mistakes in recent times. The Meng Foon affair, the speech at RNZ, the shouting at staff, and now the car crash. Sure, she's had a relationship breakup this year as well, but, you know, her well-documented life history suggests she doesn't do relationships well and she's been through a breakup or two before. So was that really a cause of her going off the rails on Sunday night? Now, Willie Jackson says that he had a phone call with her around 6 o'clock on Sunday night and that she wasn't in a good space then. So what does she do but go out drinking and driving? But here's the thing about this mental health excuse. If you have the flu or a cold or some other illness and you're off work for a week, an employer will usually ask for a doctor's certificate to prove that you're crook and that you're getting some treatment for it. Shouldn't the same thing happen with matters of mental health? I mean, if you're feeling depressed or unstable, shouldn't you be treated or counselled about your problems? Did Kitty Allen actually see anybody about her mental health condition? She certainly didn't tell the Prime Minister about any treatment or provide any evidence that she was better after her week off. So she has not helped herself. David Seymour was making legitimate points during the debate in Parliament yesterday, asking that if the Labour government couldn't manage itself, how could it manage the country? And, you know, that's a question that hundreds of thousands of other people are asking as well. Julian Batchelor's co-governance meeting in Hastings didn't go so well on Monday night, did it? The protesters lined up on the street outside the meeting. The police formed a barricade to protect the meeting venue. And when the number reached about 100, the police called the meeting off because it had become, quote, unsafe. Now, if there's 100 people on the street outside and the meeting is going on inside, who's unsafe? It sounds like the police barricade was the place and the one under pressure. But in what was quite an extensive report about the night, there is virtually nothing in the story about what exactly Julian Batchelor says is either wrong or upsetting. The nearest to this is when a guy called Ariki Haida watched a video from inside the meeting taken by his wife where he says Batchelor claims Maori used the Treaty of Waitangi to get what they want. But it's the same old story. Julian Batchelor is happy to have discussion and dialogue about his claims at his meetings, but he wants to make his case first. Then he's prepared for comments and discussion. After all, that's what happens in a court. There is the case for the prosecution and then the case for the defence. And this is what happens on a marae too. Speakers are respected And then there can be disagreement when it's the next person's time to speak. So why can't those protesting at these meetings show some decorum and respect for meeting protocol? Wouldn't a lot more be achieved in an air of civility and not in an atmosphere of shouting and noise? 
And media could play their part too. They could actually report what Julian Batchelor is saying and what those who disagree with him are saying too. But all we're getting right now is just protesters with their inflammatory statements about Julian Batchelor's hate speech and disinformation. And that is not helping anybody to move forward in what is a very important discussion for this country's future. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. If you're looking to steer your child into a lucrative career which will look after you in your old age, uh, maybe you should get them to think about being a lawyer. Uh, Nothing new in this, of course. Uh, In particular, though, a lawyer that works for a firm that gets work from Auckland Council. Because the Auckland Council and its associated organisations like Auckland Transport and Watercare has spent about $25 million a year over the past five years on legal fees with top Auckland law firms. That's $68,000 a day, seven days a week. On top of that, there's more than $30,000 a day being spent with the accounting firms. Now, Auckland Council itself has a legal services team of 63 lawyers and legal executives. The council's general counsel is Helen Wilde. She's a nice lady. She used to work as the in-house lawyer in the TVNZ newsroom. I know her pretty well. She says 80% of the council's legal work is done in-house. But as we know, there are lawyers and there are lawyers. A lot of work required by the council is beyond the skills of the in-house people, so they have to get outsider specialists to do it, which is not uncommon in business. But even a bulk buy procurement approach with outside law firms five years ago has not stopped this extraordinary annual legal bill. In fact, the price has gone up. Look, Auckland Council is a huge and complicated organisation, and at any one time there are reportedly 3,000 legal files on the go. But to be spending $25 a year on lawyers and another $12 a year on accountants is just eye-watering. What's also highly revealing is that while Auckland Council spends $25 million a year on outside lawyers from the big firms for 20% of their legal work, Their entire in-house legal team of 63 has costs of only $9 million a year for 80% of the legal work. So what's the solution here for the Mayor Wayne Brown as he looks to clamp down on these costs? Well, the obvious place to start might be to upskill the council legal team or hire more lawyers with specialist skills, even if you have to pay them really high salaries. At least it will be a fixed cost and the services won't be charged in six-minute segments. If you're an Auckland Council ratepayer, you can justifiably be really grumpy about nearly $70,000 a day, including weekends and public holidays, going to lawyers. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, I know a guy my age who has not had a happy life. At the age of 69, he has no money, no assets, he has addiction issues, and family relationships which are tenuous to say the least. I feel really sorry for the guy, but he's intelligent enough to know that he was not given 
the best cards in life, especially early on. As he's gone through life, he has read about why things have turned out for him the way they have. And what he often says to me is that his first thousand days of life back in the 1950s were highly disruptive. He was born to parents who didn't want him and didn't care for him. So he was adopted, but adopted as a toddler, not as a baby. It's too late to help this guy now, and he'll spend his final years in assisted living with the state paying the bill. But his circumstances came to my mind when I read Richard Preble's latest column in the New Zealand Herald today about youth crime. As he says, effective crime prevention starts early, between the ages of zero and three. Now, my friend was not a criminal, but it's the same principle. Identified children likely to have issues in life because of the circumstances of their birth and their first home, and then provide the appropriate wraparound social services to them and their parents at a young age. Richard Preble offers an approach I hadn't thought of before. Get the father, if you know who it is, to be present to witness the birth of his child. He writes that holding a newborn triggers something in the DNA of even the most hardened gang members. And if the appropriate support is there, a baby will never be frightened. A frightened baby, writes Richard Preble, is an angry 16-year-old doing a ram raid in later years. Look, I don't know if this approach will work, but it's worth a go, isn't it? What I do know is that current methods to reduce crime, whether punitive or restorative, are not working. It's become a generational issue in this country, and it's now nearly three generations old. The adage of the first thousand days of life being the most important to a child's future has never been challenged. The concept is there, but you know, I see little work being done to address it. If we could identify babies at potential risk of harm at birth or in the days soon after, why don't we at least try to put serious efforts in to help them then? Because my 69-year-old friend is an example of a life unfulfilled because of a lack of love and attention in those first thousand days. Now it's another school term and another teacher shortage crisis, eh? It's a problem everywhere, especially in the provinces. Some schools are so short of teachers, they're likely to ask kids to stay at home. The stories are everywhere of retired teachers having to be brought in as relievers, of principals having to teach in the classroom as well as running the school, of vacancies going unfulfilled for a term because of a lack of applicants. So, are there any solutions? There are certainly no quick fix ones. Extra pay won't do it by itself. Would financial assistance for teacher training help? Maybe. And if the trainees are then bonded to teach for the time equivalent to their training, there is a guaranteed supply of young teachers for three years at least. But I suspect the underlying issue might be that teachers are happy enough to be teachers but they don't want to be social workers as well. Maybe some of them are not happy with what they have to teach and how they have to teach it, but there appears little is being done to address the numerous basic issues in education in this country, and a shortage of skilled and properly trained teachers in front of the nation's youth is an ongoing issue. It was encouraging to hear Erica Stanford, the prospective Minister of Education in a national-led government, talking yesterday about her plans to revamp teacher training and indeed to revamp the curriculum. But if she gets the job as minister, she'll be fighting the unions 
and, of course, the bureaucracy at the Ministry of Education. Let's hope that she is a strong-willed individual. Because for the sake of the nation's future, we need to revamp education in this country, and that includes training lots and lots of good teachers and keeping them happy in their work. That is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show here on Reality Check Radio. Thank you for your company. Correspondence is most welcome through inbox at realitycheck.radio or via text at 2057. And you can find us on Facebook. I'm back on Friday afternoon. Enjoy your evening. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.